Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Louise Kennedy may not have been a name you'd heard five years ago, but since 2021, she has both a debut novel and a collection of short stories published. Trespasses was named a Best Book of the Year by the Washington Post and shortlisted for the Women's Prize in Fiction. Her story collection, The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac, also came out to great acclaim. Louise spent 30 years working as a chef and didn't come to writing until her late 40s. She grew up Catholic on the outskirts of Belfast in Northern Ireland at the height of the Troubles. A bomb detonated in front of her grandmother during a walk to the bank, resulting in several hundred stitches. The pub that her grandfather ran suffered two bombing attempts. After the second one, they moved to Ireland, where she still lives today. She joins me to talk about both trespasses and the end of the world, her approaches to short stories versus novels, what coming to writing later in life gave to her fiction, how to make place a character in your fiction, and so much more. Louise Kennedy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I thought before we got to the meat of it, because your fiction is so informed by your time growing up in Northern Ireland, and because I find so many writers mine the material from their childhood, and because I'm going to assume some of our audience are Americans who may or may not, like me, be kind of ignorant of 20th century world events, I thought maybe we could just lay some some groundwork. And I certainly knew... Northern Ireland was a dangerous place in the last quarter of the century. And, you know, I saw the crying game and basically I can't tell you much more than that. Mm -hmm. So I thought maybe, yeah, you could just spend the first few minutes talking about that experience of growing up there. And and then we can talk about how you, you mine that material in your fiction. Yeah, so I was born in 1967 in Belfast and grew up on the outskirts of the city um, where my family had a pub. And um, in 1969, some civil rights protests by students provoked a response from the authorities and it caused a series of events that looking back I'm sure everybody realizes now were probably avoidable that that made the place really descend into into chaos and for many of the people who lived in that place at that time they went about their business um, you know tried to go to work and educate their children and uh, and live fairly quietly but it wasn't always possible um, you didn't have to be directly involved in what they known as the as the troubles to be affected by them and i suppose that's the point of view that i was was coming from when i wrote the book so i guess my memory really of, of that time was of this really kind of unrelenting anxiety you know, that all of the adults around were in the grip of for different reasons, I guess. And maybe that's what really I was trying to get across if I was trying to do anything when I was writing Trespasses in, in, in particular. I love how the Irish are so understated about things, just calling it the troubles. Yeah, it's sort of, it sounds almost romantic. It's a really strange term. I think it, it was originally used in the maybe in 1920, 1921 to describe a similar but kind of shorter period of, um, of sectarian conflict and someone very um, romantically called troubles. And then when things began to happen again in the late 60s, a journalist, I think, for the Irish newspaper used it again and it kind of stuck. So it's interesting. Um, I think certainly the British government was at pains to say that it wasn't a war and to dismiss it as a kind of a law and order thing. But I think most of us who who lived through that time really felt that it was much more than that. It was the sectarian and I suppose class divisions were really pretty deep. Yeah, there was another word that I ran across when reading, I think in reading the novel, I can't remember if it was in the short stories, but it was Mm -hmm. another like very understated word for what seemed to be going on. And I was almost wondering if the Irish adopt some of these, you like you say, a romantic word for something mm-hmm. to just like soften the blow of what's really going on. Yeah, there might be a bit of that, all right. Um, I don't know. I think that sometimes Irish people have a kind of a funny relationship with with language. Um, yeah, certainly when, when I'm writing, and I didn't realize this when I was doing it, but um, I think that maybe I'm working off a few different lexicons because I grew up in the North and some of the words that we used were, where I now know were um, Ulster Scots. And then when we moved to the south, you know, south of the border, I guess the people around me were using Hiberno-English that I hadn't really heard before. And then I guess there's also the um, the formal English that we all take in as as readers. So there's probably a bit of, of that going on. 
Oh, yeah. You had me running for my dictionary more than once. Oh, really? <laughs> Sorry about that. No, I love <laughs> it. No, I'm a dictionary geek. So I was like, yes, a new word. I don't oh. know. It's great. Yeah, we'll get into the language in a minute because it was just delicious. I mean, it's, oh, and, and I really do. Feel, I do feel like if you are, and we talk about this on the show quite a bit, if you're bilingual, and I, I don't know if you would call yourself bilingual, but what this hybrid of, of language is, it mm -hmm. just gives such a depth. And, you know, I, as, as I said in another interview, it just gives you so many more keys on the piano to play on, you know, mm -hmm. when you have this, I don't know, ability and fluidity across, across. Language. Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably something that um, I, I guess it's the case that if I was to think about it too much and, and work at it, it would be trying too hard or something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's maybe just something that kind of comes, comes naturally. And there's another thing as well that uh, until I suppose the 19th century, pretty much everybody on the island of Ireland in the late 19th century spoke the Irish language, which, you know, maybe U.S. listeners might refer to as Gaelic. But when Irish people were losing their language, they weren't given formal lessons. It was really rather a desperate um, endeavour to educate themselves for, for emigration. And, and what they did was to apply the new English words that they'd learned to the very different grammatical structures structures that exist in, in the Irish language. And that has a particular effect as well. And some of those kind of little ticks still exist in Irish people's speech. So I always think that's kind of interesting, too. Yeah, I was I was just reading an article this morning on 10 reasons the Irish language is so awesome. Mm -hmm. Actually, maybe I'll even link to it in, in the show notes because there were so yeah. many interesting things about just the construction of the language, mm -hmm. putting verbs first. And that's obviously. right. And and things like, you know, I'm only after doing that. I mean, that's that's directly from the Irish, you know, be told my to age. So great. It's funny. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you used that word anxiety at the beginning of describing the the overall emotion of growing up there, because I, I do talk to a lot of writers. I think there's something really interesting about experiences we have before we have language, now that we're talking about language, to give to mm -hmm. those experiences. Mm -hmm. And then writers seem to spend the rest of their lives trying to unpack and give language to something that felt so much in their body when they couldn't contextualize it in their mm -hmm. mind, you know? And yeah. Uh, yeah, I can see that all over your work here. Mm -hmm. So tell me about coming to writing. So you came to writing later. And I don't even think I, I've read you weren't even one of those people who were writing all the way along. You just uh, you just know I wasn't writing. I thought, God, above. no, certainly not. Um, in school, probably in primary school, when I was pretty young, I had one teacher in particular who did things that, that looking back were a bit mad because no one in the class had a lot of um, cultural capital. She would one day she played a Mozart horn concerto for us and asked us to write something about how it made us feel. And um, another day she pinned a Monet, a poster of a Monet painting to the wall and asked us to do the same thing. And um, I, I don't know, I, I remember at the time thinking this is mad, but I threw myself into it and she was always very encouraging with whatever anybody, you know, about what, whatever anybody wrote. But really then after that, I, I, I just remember English lesson, you know, English class in, in school, certainly later on when I was a teenager, just, um, being about memorizing large chunks of poems by men who'd been dead for about 200 years and um, and just not really being encouraged to think about things really. Uh, you know, it was all pretty prescriptive and certainly there was no creative writing. So I always read a lot. My mother had me reading before I started school. And, you know, and I think that habit, you know, has stayed with me all my life. But when I left uh, university, I, I left with a, a social science degree and thought I might like to be a social worker. And um, I tried that a little, but um, I, I used to I have a tendency to over empathize. So I was no good to anybody. And I also had developed quite a bit of anxiety, which probably looking back was some sort of a thing, maybe that had begun when, when I was about seven or, or eight Although, you know, we never put these things together until much later. So I ended up, I couldn't have, you know, I couldn't go to an interview and I couldn't present myself in any sort of formal setting. I used to just have back and go to pieces. So I have, be, I went to live in London and became really interested in food when I was there and realised that I could circumvent the whole interview issue that I had developed and support myself if I trained to be a chef and also how what I thought it might be really quite a nice life and in lots of ways it, it was you know I borrowed money and did a cordon bleu cookery course and I cooked and ran restaurants for years you know I didn't you know to get a job all you had to do was turn up with your knives and your uniform and either you were uh, you know a good worker with some sort of palate or you weren't and it was as straightforward as that 
But towards the end of my years as a as a cook, I, myself and my husband were running a small restaurant in the in the west of Ireland that had opened during uh, a period that the Irish government hilariously called the downturn, which was um, you know near economic collapse. That's know. the word. Yes, I remember that's it's the downturn. That's the, that's the, that's the Honest downturn. to God, the downturn. Yeah, you, you know, it was a time when there were lots of suicides um, because of debt. I mean, I think this was happening all over the world, um, really, or you know, in lots of places. Probably about two thousand and nine and about twenty twelve or thirteen. And we had opened our restaurant, you know, just on, on the cusp of the of the downturn. And um, and really, we're, we're fighting a losing battle. But, you know, it limped along for about seven years. Um, my mental health was deplorable. Um, my husband probably wasn't much better. And it, it, by January 2014, things were really pretty bad. And, you know, we had mortgage arrears and I was in antidepressants and everything. And a friend of mine messaged me one day and said that she had been invited to join a writing group that had just been set up in the town that we live in. And I thought this was the ridiculously hilarious thing ever. And um, I said, what would I be doing going to something like that? So she kept at me through the day and uh, eventually pulled up outside the house. And um, I, I got into the car with her. Um, I must have been curious, you know, I, I, maybe also I had nothing to lose at that stage because things were just generally so awful. But I went along to the first meeting and really felt very out of place. Everyone in the room seemed to have been involved in some form of creative practice, except me, because I didn't think that cooking um, counted. Um, but on the first night, it was agreed that we would, each of us would try to write um, a short story and someone would present theirs each week. And I think I had like five weeks or something. Um, but I do remember that I went into, you know, I got home and began trying to work on the story straight away. And literally within a couple of sentences, I just thought I need to find a way of being able to do this all the time. And then you got both an MA and a PhD. I did. So, Lord. yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. So, yeah. So that was in January 2014. And then the restaurant kind of died finally in August 2014, which, I mean, it was something that I had dreaded and it kept me awake at night the process this happened. But it actually, in the end, it sort of went out with a whimper. But it did mean that both myself and my husband ended up on benefits, as we call them here, for the first time in our lives. And that was kind of pretty awful. But my husband was told somewhere along the line, that we might be entitled to funding for further education. So I enrolled in an, an MA creative writing course in Belfast, in Queen's University in Belfast. And I think actually I probably got the better deal because my husband uh, started training to be an accountant. You did, yes. <laughs> I did, yeah. He's very, he's a lot more practical than me. Like he knows what, when it's bin day, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Right. I'm not great on any of that stuff. So the first, yeah, so my MA was was mostly funded by the Irish government, I guess, and then by a little bit of help from family. And then the following year, I, you know, when I finished that, I applied for funding for a PhD and, and got it. So that was kind of great. Mm. Um, yeah. Do you feel like those were both necessary to what you're doing now? Or do you feel like you could have gone on to be self-taught? I'm always curious what, writers think about I mean you didn't have to pay for the education you know I think a lot of people in the states are like is it worth the money to spend on the MFA or is it yeah I get that I can only say what it did for me and I would say also that I don't think it did this for all of my classmates because maybe they were there for different reasons or they were at different stages of their lives or their writing or something I mean, when I started the MA, I, I had only been writing for like a little bit over a year, maybe a year and a half. But I think it was very serious. You know, the writing group that I that I joined that night was it turned out to be really serious. Uh, nobody missed a deadline. We were all really meticulous about giving each other feedback and, and trying to help each other. And, and actually, really, those meetings were structured. I later realized when I was in an MA program, very much like an MA class. So I think it is possible to do that outside of, you know, a formal education. But I think what it did for me was it gave me deadlines. I always felt that I had maybe unfinished business with education because I had been considered pretty bright in primary school. But I didn't perform well in, in you know, in secondary school. And I just about scraped out of university with a pretty, I actually didn't even realise how bad my grade was until I had to get transcripts of my results to apply for the MA. And I was thinking, Jesus, was I that bad? <laughs> um, 
I'd forgotten her, I, I guess. But yeah, so I had an unfinished business in that way. But I think crucially what it did was to bring me back to the north of Ireland. So it meant that, you know, a couple of nights a week, I would drive to Belfast. I would stay in my auntie's house. She lived uh, quite near to the university and I would go to classes. And really, that was the longest time that I had spent, you know, sustained time that I'd spent in Belfast or anywhere near Belfast since I was a 12 year old. And is that where either the collection or the novel started was in the PhD program? I would say that in a weird way, both of them started in the MA program because uh, the very, very first story that I wrote that ended up in the short story. So I'm conscious that the short stories have come out most recently in the US, but in the UK, they were published the other way around. So the very first story that I wrote for that that ended up in the collection was called Hunter Gatherers. And I think I wrote that maybe in the first draft of that in like early 2016. It went through very many drafts and, and quite a few changes after that. And it, it probably took a few years really to get it to the stage that it, it was at when it was included in the collection. But yeah, that began on the MA programme. And then the very first thing that I wrote that ended up in Trespasses was the prologue. It trespasses opens. It begins with a prologue and ends with an epilogue. And the, and the prologue is just like a, it's like maybe two, two and a half pages. Yeah. And it's where a woman is standing in the Ulster Museum looking at a piece of art and it triggers a, a memory of someone that she used to know. And that came out of an exercise that we did on my MA programme for a life writing class where we were booted next door into the Ulster Museum and asked to write about a piece of art. And it was maybe a year or so after, a year or two after the Art of the Troubles um, exhibition of 2014 that had really been a pretty groundbreaking and, and controversial as these things very often are. You know, some people felt that it hadn't gone far enough. Some people felt that it had gone too far. But maybe it just made me think about how art could be used to express things that are unsayable in a, in, in a place where language is so problematic. So some of that exercise actually landed in, is in the, the prologue pretty much word for word. But really all I had was that. But I didn't have a story or any idea of character that would have, that, that all came later. That is so funny that it started with that prologue, that the novel started with that prologue, because I would have assumed after reading it, that you added those sections, those bookend sections sort of at the end. To... Yeah, it's funny. Uh, so the, well, actually the epilogue did come very late and, and there was a debate about whether to have it or not. Because I think I, I really procrastinated over that. I knew what needed to be in it, but I, I think maybe I had to feel fully comfortable about what I'd done with the main body of the story before I could bear to write it. And I think a decision was made that either there was going to be neither or both. So I wrote yeah. the epilogue and that was yeah. the, that was actually the very last thing that I wrote. Well, we should introduce Trespasses if people haven't yet picked it up. So it's set in 1975 with, with mm -hmm. like we talk about these bookend exceptions at the mm -hmm. beginning and the end that are in 2015. Mm -hmm. During the Troubles in Northern Ireland, and Pushla is our protagonist in her mm -hmm. early 20s, living with her alcoholic mother yeah, and working in her brother's bar, which he inherited when their dad died. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do this and then you can tell me when I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> And really, the story is on kind of these two parallel tracks and, you know, kind of until they collide. And one is sort of this romance love story that's probably destined to fail, we kind of think. Mm -hmm. And the second is the, sort of this protective teacher-student story that's very much grounded in the in the troubles. How am I doing so far? Am I doing this? That's brilliant. Absolutely marvelous. <laughs> and then all hell ensues and then the end. Mm -hmm. So when you wrote that prologue or that, mm -hmm. did you know this is a novel versus this is going to be a short story? Or at what point did you know? No, it was actually, that was actually for a nonfiction piece. So I thought, okay, that's just what it is. But I think maybe something about it kind of 
maybe sometimes um, things will sit with you for a while, you know, and I didn't ever do anything with it. I mean, quite a few of the things that I wrote during that year, that MA year, with some of the shorter pieces, I might have submitted them to flash fiction competitions, that sort of thing. But this one, maybe I thought subconsciously or, you know, in the back of my mind, I, I figured there was maybe more to it than that. But I didn't really do very much with it for a few years. So when I did the PhD, there was a critical component to it. And I did that a forgotten um, uh, Irish writer, a very neglected Irish writer called Nora Holt, who wrote, uh, she had like 27 books published uh, between 1928 and uh, probably 1970, who'd been very popular and prolific and, um, and, and critically pretty well received, especially in, in the early days, who just had a completely fallen out of print. And um, I decided to write some short stories in response to her work. Now, the truth is that I I did read her work, but I, I certainly wasn't thinking about her stories as I sat down to write. So I was very busy with that. And then it came to a point, maybe about a year before I was supposed to submit my PhD, where I don't even have undergrad English. And I had amassed all of this research on, on Nora Holt, but I didn't know how the hell to write it up. And I had a meeting with one of my supervisors, and rather than admit that I had all of this stuff, but no actual writing on it. I stormed into his office one day and said, all my short stories are done, they're all ready. And he, and he said, well, that's great, but what about the critical component? And I said, oh, don't worry about that, I'm writing a novel, which is a complete lie. Um, <laughs> I didn't want him to think I was lazy. So I left there and I thought, hmm, okay, well, maybe. And he, also, he didn't seem horrified at the idea of me writing a novel. He said, well, that's all very well, and you're probably ready to try the, you know, a longer form but you, you need to knuckle down and get this work done. But anyway, I floated out of there, delighted with myself, and thought, should I just write a novel? And um, it was probably late 2018, and I applied myself a little bit, you know. I did not very hard to writing a novel, and somehow when I sat down, I thought, okay, it's going to be about a young... I, I knew it was going to be set in a pub, and that there was going to be this young woman, and that a man was going to walk into the bar and sweep her off her feet, but I didn't know so much else about that. And I knew... I don't know, at the time, I thought I was plucking the year 1975 out of the air, but, but actually it's, it was a year of tremendous change in, in my childhood. So after a, a couple of bomb attacks on my grandparents' pub, a decision was made to sell it. And it meant that I went from living within walking distance of all the relatives on my dad's side um, to a lot of them being gone. They, you know, they sold up and moved south of the border. And, um, and I suppose... That I don't want to say I don't want to be really dramatic and say it marked the end of my childhood, but it was really quite a, a dividing line, and and maybe as well because I was eight that year. Maybe that's an age when um, children start to understand more about the world around them. So I think probably that's why 1975 was I I chose it, and yeah. Uh, don't you love how you can't escape your subconscious as a writer? Oh my like, god! Just freaking haunt you. No matter. It what. is actually terrible, and in a way, it's terrible. But it's also, I mean, I, I think it, it's sort of. I think it's terrible later on when you, or maybe not later on. At the time, you sort of think that these these ideas are just you know coming to you or something, you know, or that that you have some control over things. But actually, really, an awful lot of the work is being done in the back of your head all the time you just don't know it yeah which is both a blessing and a curse I think it is a blessing as well I think if you're you know if you're if you're not in a good place with your work and you can't really access that or if you can't let that come then it's a it's a problem but um if you just go with it it's, it's all right yeah or if you look at it and say man I really am screwed up <laughs> <laughs> yes well there's that as well yeah absolutely so tell me a little bit about finding your door into this. Was it the time period? Was it a character? Who got their hooks into you and how did they do it? I think a version of Kushla, who's the main, you know, the protagonist, this 24-year-old teacher. I think a version of Kushla had been bothering me for a few years. In one of the short stories in my collection, In Silhouette, it opens in a bar on a warm night in the 1970s where this young woman, now she's she's younger than, than Kushla is in the story. She's probably around 18, where she gets dressed up to go out and um, she she's in the pub with her friends sitting beside the jukebox when uh, a stranger walks into the bar. And also uh, when I was doing the MA in Queens, I took a course in script writing 
my rules of play. Uh, not a very good play, I, I might add, and one that I hope will never see see the light of day. But is opened in a bar with a a young kind of bored woman sitting behind a bar. So I don't know. Maybe I watched too many westerns when I was a child. But I seem to have had some sort of fixation with the idea of um of a, of a woman waiting in a bar for the saloon doors to swing open and some man strangers come in and sweep her off her feet. <laughs> well, a bar is such a great setting for all kinds of reasons. I mean, once you add alcohol to the mix, you know, you can get your characters talking and they'll say and Absolutely. do things they wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes, well, I think um, Irish pubs are kind of weirdly democratic, you know, you get all, all sorts of people in them and that can be an interesting dynamic. Well, and that's a good point. I mean, if we haven't mentioned it yet, we should say that there are class, religious class, mm-hmm. social issues all over both this book and the short stories. And mm-hmm. so that's and a bar. I love that you use the word democratic for mm-hmm. a bar setting because it's true. Anybody mm-hmm. will walk in and mm-hmm. once you're sitting at a bar, kind of all things are equal and people will say anything. Mm-hmm. What a great explosive igniting setting. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I suppose the bar that we, I mean, bar in the story is very much based on the one that my family had. So the clientele probably really reflected the demographic of the town, which was that the town was probably about 90% Protestant and uh, we, we were Catholic. So there would have been um, a fairly raggle-taggle bunch of regulars, these men who were like not very high-functioning alcoholics who used to come in every day and line the bar. And then there were various other people coming in and out. And also because the town had a very large British army barracks on its outskirts, um, you know, probably about a mile away, off-duty British soldiers used to come and drink there which people always seem to think is really surprising, but um, you couldn't turn them away. <laughs> so they were served drink. But um, I think that was really pretty stressful for, for my family members who had to stand behind the bar and pull pints because the British soldiers had been brought in in 1969 to try to quell, uh, I suppose, the sort of civil civil violence really that was happening around the place. And by that stage, by 1975, soldiers were being shot at and blown up and were really extremely unwelcome in um, in Catholic kind of nationalist areas. So they very often weren't easy to deal with when they did come into the pub. I'm interested in this way that you brought the place back to life and your kind of your own relationship with it. So you said you'd been away from it since you were 12. You came back to it for your PhD. Yeah. And seeing it kind of, you know, with child eyes and adult eyes and being away and coming back to observe it and then having to bring it to life for readers. I assume being back there must have triggered all sorts of things that perhaps made it into both the short stories and the the novels. Yeah, I think it probably did. I think especially with the novel, it made me think about a lot of things that I hadn't had to think about for, for a long time. So, you know, we left in 1979. It was over 20 years before the violence that, that the violence stopped as a result of this accord that became known as the Good Friday Agreement. And that brought a lot of change. You know, when I was a child, there was what they called a, a ring of steel around Belfast city centre. So if you wanted to go shopping in any of the department stores, you know, if my mother was going to bring us to get shoes or anything like that, we would have to queue and wait to be searched uh, by armed police. The army would, who were armed as well would be standing around and we would all be searched. Um, it didn't stop bombs from being smuggled in. So, you know, it wasn't unusual if you did go into the city centre that there'd be some sort of bomb scare and people would be running in various directions and and so on. So all of that is gone. All of the cordons are lifted. And in lots of ways, Belfast city centre looks very prosperous. But if you go maybe north or east or west of the city centre, it's really pretty clear that the Good Friday Agreement didn't deliver prosperity for everybody. And I suppose it made me realise, not realise, I think it was something that I suspected, but I didn't have any, I think I knew, I understood it, but I didn't have words for it when I was a child, that that your experience of the troubles was really affected by geography and class. So people who lived in particular areas 
and you know it's particularly areas uh, you know that would have been sort of socioeconomically deprived really had a pretty terrible experience of things you know middle class people were cushioned to a certain extent and it's still the case that they are adversely affected by life i guess in general also it really made me think about the um, the actual physical geography of the city because a couple of years after we left, a road, this great big road, uh, kind of a swathe of land was cut through Belfast. That's called the West Link. And every time I, I drive on it, I just can't. They appear to have cut way more than they needed to, to make that road. So and it set, what it did was, I think, possibly deliberately, it separated the more volatile parts of West Belfast, the Falls Road and the Shankill Road from the city centre. And it means that whole streets disappeared, lots of buildings disappeared. And I don't know where I am when, I, when I'm in Belfast, in parts of Belfast. Also, I suppose because we left at the end of the 70s, uh, the bombing and damage to kind of buildings continued for, for a long time. So even more buildings were gone by the time uh, the Good Friday Agreement came. So um, a, a lot of the city is, well, I mean, you know, the big things like the City Hall are still there, but uh, a lot of it really looks pretty unfamiliar. And I suppose... It meant that when I was, if I, you know, on the days when I went into Belfast, I'd have to remember really hard. I was like, what was here beforehand? I think that took me on some sort of a journey through place as well. I think, okay, when we were on my way, our way to my my other granny's house, not the granny who who, who lived in, in the town with us, but my mother's mother who lived near our join, which you know, be, ended up being kind of world infamous because it just seemed to be in a permanent state of riot. Uh, when we went to her house, there were particular journeys that we had to take. And also there were very often, I don't know, buses burning and, and, and that sort of thing. So I, I think it maybe took me back to all of that. We'll be back with more from Louise Kennedy in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. A quick note to check out our Patreon page if you are a regular listener of the show, if you're enjoying these behind-the-scenes discussions of how books get made, about how these authors came to the profession, if anything they have said has inched you closer to publication in your own practice, check us out there. Any amount helps us out. You can visit patreon.com slash writersonwriting. Let's get back to it with Louise Kennedy talking about trespasses and the end of the world as a cul-de-sac. To get back to this book, at what point did you know there were going to be two tracks, they were going to intersect? Did you kind of know where you were going? Or tell me a little bit about this discovery or whether it was, you know, pretty carefully plotted before you sat down to write all of it? Yeah, so I didn't plan it. Actually, what happened was, so, you know, I told you that I um, I went away and I'm writing a novel after that meeting where I lied to my supervisor, my PhD supervisor. So I made a playlist and I made some sort of half-assed attempts at, at writing a novel, but really I didn't have a very strong sense of it. But a few months later, in early 2019, I had a diagnosis for melanoma and I had to have some surgery. That meant that I, I knew I was going to be off work for two or three months. And, you know, the first few days I spent sitting in a chair watching all three seasons of Call My Agent, which is great. But <laughs> after a while, I, I just um, and I was on strong painkillers. But I guess to kind of take my mind off my predicament, I needed something to do. So I made a deal with myself that I'd write a thousand words a day and that I'd forgive myself if I didn't manage to turn up at the desk every day, you know, on, on account of the fact that I was kind of wounded. And that I would, you know, keep going until I had some sort of a draft of a novel. And I, I didn't feel as I was going along that I was making a lot of progress. But somehow within 11 weeks, I had, mm, I think, 64,000 words of what could charitably be called a novel. So I didn't plot it or plan it. But I did find that I don't work like that at all, actually. Um, but I did find that I maybe got to know the characters by just playing and shy at them to see how they'd react. So that's what I did with Kushla. I suppose the big thing that happens, because I don't want to do give any spoilers or whatever, but there's a, a big thing that happens. And um, I knew from the outset that was going to happen. But I didn't know how or when or who else might be involved in it until I was writing. That actually really became clear to me in fairly advanced drafts. I mean, I think it was probably around draft four 
when I realized that, you know, so Krishna, there are two, Krishna has two, I, mean, I suppose there are three fairly significant relationships in her life, or maybe more. Um, one is with her mother, who has a burgeoning gin habit. Another is with this man, Michael Agnew, who who walks into the bar one night and who she begins a, a relationship with it in spite of the fact that it's a really bad idea. And then also with a, a, a little boy who she teaches. So she becomes very, I mean, I don't want to say close. I mean, I, I suppose she just sort of feels that she has to help this child's family after his father is um, is randomly attacked and very badly injured just on a street one night. So as she becomes close to his family, you know, there's his mother and his sister and his brother. But I think I probably didn't really, I didn't know how significant, you know, certainly one of the, his family members was going to be to the story until right. pretty late. Until the late, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how I feel like if a writer is surprised, it's a greater surprise for a reader. Like I can almost feel novels that are carefully plotted before the writing begins. I don't, oh, know, yeah. I don't know why I say that, but yeah, yeah, when it's when it's a shock to me, which everything was a shock to me in this book. In the end. Oh, was it? Oh, great. Yes. yes. <laughs> I hope in a good way. Yeah, no, no, it was in a, <laughs> an amazing way. And then, but I thought, you know, it feels like this might have been a shock to Louise as well. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, certain bits were a shock. And, you know, sometimes it, it was kind of a pretty emotional uh, process. There, there were a few times when I absolutely belly laughed out loud. And most of the time... Mostly when that happened, it was when I was putting words in the mouth of Gina, Kushla's mother, because every word that she said, I imagined my grandmother saying it um, because my grandmother was, I mean, she was a fairly, I guess she was pretty hard boiled, you know, and um, I mean, she, in a, in a way she had a heart of gold, but also she would rather die than let anybody know that. And I think as well, because you know, those women had all, that generation of women, they'd lived through the first set of Irish troubles, like World War II, other little skirmishes and stuff. You know, they'd, they'd grown up with, you know, having to, uh, very limited by, you know, the kind of systemic sectarianism that existed in, in, in the north of Ireland all their lives. And then, you know, when their children were reared and they should have been able to put their feet up, then the troubles happened and they had to deal with, you know, with soldiers and bomb scares and everything else. And yeah, so that was kind of fun, you know, enabling her to, you know, this character to express a lot of this stuff. But at times it was really, I don't want to say painful, you know, but um, but I probably cried a lot. Just remembering just how awful it was a lot of the time as well. Did you have little pictures up on your computer? I, I saw a photo of your fantastic, I don't know if you call it your she shed, your writing shed in the back. Oh, I have a shed, yeah. Amazing. Oh. Um, and I was wondering kind of how you organize, because you've got short stories going, you had the novel going, mm -hmm. you know, there's timelines to keep straight in the novel a bit. Mm -hmm. There's a big cast of characters in the novel. Mm -hmm. There's 15 short stories and I'm mm -hmm. just kind of wondering how you kind of kept everything straight, organized things. God, I don't know. I know that some of the time it was a bit mad out there because um, I think the year that I, I think, what was the year? I submitted my PhD in December 2020. And maybe I submitted a little earlier and I did my Viva in um, 2020. But that year was pandemic year and uh, in Ireland we had pretty strict lockdown so when I say lockdown I mean for like several months we weren't allowed to go further than two kilometers from our home on foot you had to have a very good reason to go uh, further than that and it meant that and my children were at home um, now they're, they're not young but they were age would they have been then maybe 20 and, and 17 they were here and my husband actually he was he still left the house to go to work lucky him but the rest of us were kind of housebound and um i i think after an initial period i i really grew to kind of love having just being at home getting to do the work not being interrupted except obviously by my um bored and starving children who were asking to be fed all the time i think everybody was finding that but um like it was just so busy. I finished the PhD that year. I brought the novel on by around three drafts and I worked on the edits for the short story collection and actually wrote, I think, probably about three, three extra stories. But I don't I don't recall it, it being difficult. But having said that, I think 
If I had to do that now, I'd, I'm just like completely horrified and daunted at the prospect. I'd probably run a mile. But you know, sometimes afterwards you think, Jesus, how the hell did I do that? Whereas at the time you just get on with it. Yeah. And I think the pandemic did give us a lot of mental, I mean, I don't know, mental space. I mean, it just kind of cleared the decks of all the crap that we have to do normally. And yeah. maybe that gives you a bigger canvas, fiction canvas, you know, to play around in because yeah, you don't I don't want to be so. here. You know? <laughs> well, that's true. I wonder as well, though. Um, so I, I have to admit that I did I? Yeah, but there were a couple of short stories, three short stories, um, but one of those I'd started already. So I, I didn't begin much new work, new creative work during pandemic. There were just, a, you know, a, there was a, like a few stories. And then, as I said, redrafting. And I really wonder if I if I hadn't had a draft of press passes down already, I really wonder how I would have done. Uh, because I think maybe you need to be in the world to be producing new work or something. Yeah, because you weren't able to travel to Belfast then, right? That was exactly before. Yeah, mm -hmm. I love how you said that certain things in your office made it into the, you know, that Kushla's basket that she carries was. Oh, that's right. The... That's her basket. Yeah, that was my aunt's basket when she was in, um, when she was a, a teacher in the early seventies, and um, that made it in there and uh, and some stuff like that. Yeah. I love that you just, you know, have a nest that you're... Yeah, it's great. Like, yeah, I have to say, it's a, bit it's a bit inhospitable at the moment. We had two storms last week and it's bloody horrible this week as well. So, um, yeah, I roll on. I'm at the kitchen. I'm working at the kitchen table these days. So roll on the spring when it's not so uh, cold and wet. Yes. Well, tell me a little bit about the business side and finding your agent and coming... I don't know if some of that came out of the... PhD or MA program of of finding agents, finding publishers, mm -hmm. sending work out to journals, some of that businessy of the, of getting published stuff. How did all that happen for you? Well, I guess that it indirectly the PhD certainly helped me because another writer who began the PhD at the same time as me, uh, his name is Michael McGee, and he wrote an unbelievably brilliant novel called Close to Home that he was working on, actually, it was part of his PhD. Um, it's The book is done brilliantly. It's published by FSG, I think, in, in the US. And um, um, and I think a day or two ago, it won the Nero Debut Fiction Award. Um, mm. But Michael and a couple of other students set up a, a kind of a literary magazine uh, called The Tangerine and they published a short story of mine. It's actually Brittle Things that's in, in the collection. And then a couple of years later, I had just written, finished this story um, called In Silhouette that I talked to you about earlier. And I had done something that I thought was maybe a bit mad or stupid, where I had um, I'd broken every rule. You know, if you're if you're being told how to write a short story, you're told to, um, you know, keep the time frame really short limit the number of characters and you're often encouraged to you know third person past tense and this story was present tense second person where this character is speaking to herself and mm -hmm. um, it takes place over 40 years and there's loads of characters and i thought it's bloody ridiculous but you know i've gone to the trouble of writing it and uh, myself and michael shared work pretty often so i sent it to him and i said is this crap? And he read it and got back to me within a couple of hours and said, no, it's a belter. And he published it. I, I made a few changes and he published it. And that story in that edition of the of the Tangerine somehow ended up on the desk of a literary agent in London. Eleanor Byrne, her name is, and she had worked in publishing for you know 20 odd years and um and was just setting out as an agent and building a list. And she contacted me through Queen's University in Belfast and uh, I went to meet her and she signed me. But I mean, again, it was just she said that she wanted to see everything that I had. So I sent her the short stories and she said, look, um, this is great, but really it would be better if we could submit to publishers a novel and a collection of short stories because publishers hate short stories. You know, the Irish writer Kevin Barry said something like, bringing a collection of short stories into a publisher is akin to dragging a dead cow over your shoulder. They just say, get that thing, horrible thing out of here. <laughs> so she said, yes, yeah, so and she said, um, uh, she said, well, have you ever thought about writing a novel? And I was like, well, actually, I am writing a novel. 
And then as soon as I the words were out of my mouth, I thought, oh, dear God, what have you done? Because <laughs> at, that was at the point where I, I just had, you know, a couple of playlists and, uh, and, and very little more. So that was probably like early 2019. Then I had the time off and I wrote the first draft of Trespasses. But I didn't have, I had an agent. I didn't have a publisher. Um, I mean, there was probably great freedom in that, actually. And I just went on about my business and forgot about it. And I was, you know, I went back to try to concentrate on the short stories that I was writing for my PhD. And I went on a research trip to Arkansas, uh, the University of Arkansas, which is lovely. But then that same short story, that story was so lucky for me in Silhouette, was shortlisted for the Sunday Times Audible Award, which at the time was the richest prize in the world for a short story in the English language. And it was submitted um, to a short list of, of six stories. So Eleanor, my agent, thought that it would be a good time because the, that prize got quite a bit of attention. She thought that maybe the editors might be curious about my writing. And um, so she um, decided to submit to publishers. But um, she said, you know, I didn't. What I had written was just a mess. And um, I told her that. I wouldn't show it to her, actually. I didn't show it to her for about a year. <laughs> After that, um, it, was a, it was in a terrible state. So she, she asked me to fix up maybe about 10,000 words and write a synopsis. So I did that. And I thought it was fantastic. And I emailed it to her. And normally she never called me. She she usually, uh, we usually communicated by email. And I'd say about, about two hours later, um, she called me and said uh, in her very nice English accent, please, do you know what a chapter is? Because I had just been like short story mad for years. You know, I was writing short stories and reading short stories. And I think I'd, it's just kind of, I don't know what. Anyway, I just sent her this big block of text, which is ridiculous. So um, I had to go back to work. I worked very hard and, and came back to her with, um, I think, about four chapters and, uh, and a synopsis. And she went out um, to, maybe it was the day of the Sunday Times award ceremony or the day before she submitted to lots of publishers in the UK. And I kind of went mad. There was like a nine-way auction. And in the end, I went with Bloomsbury Publishers in the UK. It's a crazy great story. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a bit mad. But I think like by the end of it, I, I don't know. I, I think I didn't really understand what was going on. And I don't want to say that I thought it was normal, but I didn't think it was normal. I thought it was mental. But I, I sort of had nervous exhaustion by the end of it because I was kind of getting love-bombed by all of these people. But at the same time, it just felt... Yeah, I just felt like it's mad and not real. Anyway. Yeah. Do you feel, I don't know, regret's probably not the right word, but do you kind of wish that you had come to writing much earlier in life? Or do you feel like it took all of this to come to this stage now and the right things are happening at the right time? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think um, I couldn't have, I, I don't know what I would have written about in my 20s. And also I was, a, I don't know, I, I, I think, well, certainly for me, I think it came at the right time. I just, I wouldn't have been able to, I wouldn't have been able to cope with it going bad. If it had gone badly, I wouldn't have been able to cope with it if it had gone well. So I think I might have had the I might have had the discipline as well, and certainly the confidence. Actually, I mean, there's probably a reason why I didn't write. I just wouldn't have. But it didn't enter my head that I'd be entitled to do something like that. Yeah. yeah. And then you just came out with a bang. I love. That. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's sort of funny. I don't know. Um, I I think. It just felt very serious from the outset. And also because I'm a bit neurotic, I edit like a maniac. So, you know, I, I really work and work and work until something's as good as it can possibly, that I can possibly make it before, you know, before I consider it finished or whatever. If, if you could say that anything's ever finished. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I think I'm lucky as well that now I work with really good editors and uh, copy editors and proofreaders and that sort of thing. So that really polishes it all up as well. Yeah. You mentioned Kevin Barry earlier and mm. um, short stories. And I had read where he gave you great advice on how to order a collection. I'm such a short story nut. I haven't really mentioned that today, but I love the short story form and I, I love the collection. So when you when you said the dead cow, I'm like, oh, rats. But but he had given you great advice on how to order a collection. Which well, was... actually, I have to say no, he didn't give me that directly. So that advice came from uh, Declan Mead, the editor of the uh, of the Stinging Fly, who had published a couple of Kevin's um, short story collections. God, I'm thinking now, I hope Kevin doesn't mind me saying that. But um, but it actually was really good advice, I think, you know, to blow their minds with the first few stories and um, put anything a bit strange or experimental in the middle and then um, and then try and finish on a high note. 
Yes. I love that because I, I talk to a lot. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I talked to so many writers of collections who are like, I don't know. I toiled forever. I moved them around forever. I didn't know what I was doing. And yeah, that's great advice. That's great advice. Yeah, it is. I think it is kind of good. And, and Kevin's books are always amazing anyway, so it hasn't done him any harm. So yeah. It's funny. His so, book just came across my desk this morning. That's coming Oh, his new July. one. Yeah, his new one. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, is there extra advice that we didn't cover today that has gotten you through 15 short stories, a novel, and I'm sure like a thousand other pages that are on your computer right now? Yeah, God, there's a good few pages on my computer right now as well. I've got a draft, another draft, a draft of the next novel that I'm trying to turn into something half sensible at the moment. Yeah, I guess, I don't know, I think that there's really the best advice that I could give people is to be more about the doing than the being. I have facilitated some um, writing classes and um, and done a little bit of teaching. And I'm always a bit baffled when, I, I used to be baffled when I would set maybe an exercise for, for people to do at home and they would come back and say that they hadn't done it. And that they, they would very often talk about being writers and what it meant to be a writer. And I'd be thinking, but you're not doing any bloody writing, love. Um, uh, the the people who impressed me more were the ones who um, just kept their heads down and did the work, you know. So I think that it just has to be always about the work. The simplest and yet not easiest advice ever. <laughs> no, it's not the easiest advice uh, uh, at all. Um, and, and certainly I think a lot of people don't really want to hear that. But um, yeah, I think uh, just it has to be about the work. Yeah. And a thousand words a day is. Uh... Yeah is a good thousand words of absolute rubbish and yes. um, and then you've got something down you're not looking at a blank page the horror of a blank page and um, and you've got something to work. are you writing that in longhand or oh no i can't i mean i would i love the idea but i think it's like terribly romantic except i can't read my own writing even on the shopping list so um i have to type it <laughs> that's fair yeah louise kennedy this was so much fun thank you so oh much. thank you so much for having me it was lovely that was Louise Kennedy. Her books are Trespasses and The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac. They are both out and available now. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com. You can also visit our show's website, writersonwriting.com, for an archive of all of our past shows. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, however you consume your podcasts. You can also visit our new affiliate, bookshop.org page, where you can buy copies of Louise's books, bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing. Purchasing your books from there helps out independent bookstores and gives a little boost to the show. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can follow his music on Spotify under Just My Type for more typewriter music, or find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.